everybody. Welcome to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast, a very packed show. First off, wind farms help increase the income and GDP of local communities, particularly in the Midwest. And it's not small. It's over 5%. That's a big increase. And the Department of Energy issued a report recently that looked at the number of patents that are derived from DOE-funded efforts. So sticking with that, we're going to go and visit our friends in the UK and see how the ORE catapult is working with the University of Plymouth to drive some innovation on that side of the pond. Uh, and then after that, staying in the water again, uh, going to jump down to Virginia and talk about how uh, Dominion Energy's big project out there for $10 billion uh, has got some some funny fine print in the terms and conditions. <laughs> so stay tuned. We'll be back after the music. So guys, a recent survey went out and study went out that uh, looked at incomes and economies where wind turbines are installed in the United States. And obviously in the United States, most of the wind turbines are installed in the Midwest from Texas to Minnesota. And a lot of those locations are rural. And the, the feeling was on the street that uh, it, putting wind turbines near or on your property has lowered the overall value of the property because of the wind turbines being there. But that turns out not to be true. In fact, uh, as based on the survey and study, it said that U.S. counties where wind energy was built saw increases in per capita income of 5%, which is a lot per capita, and gross domestic product per capita go up by 6.5%. So when they compared adjacent counties, they saw where the wind turbines were had basically better income and more economic activity. Uh, the the second part of this is that the house, housing prices were pretty stable. Didn't seem to make much difference uh, in terms of whether wind turbines were there or not. Didn't change home prices much. Uh, what they did sh- see also was a shift in the workforce. So the workforce, which was primarily rural farmers, uh, some part of them, those people started to be more mechanically inclined. And technicians, uh, farmers are mechanically inclined anyway, typically. Uh, but there were more people working in the wind locally, so they could work the farm and also work at a wind turbine site. That seems to be the the shift. Uh, so th- that relates to offshore wind and the big push in the United States for offshore wind, uh, where offshore wind is not going to be paying local the local people anything, really, uh, because they're in federal waters. They don't have to pay a landowner for anything. They're paying the federal government. Uh, so are we just going to see as much acceptance on the offshore wind side, as we have on onshore wind, it seems like onshore wind are people who are around onshore wind that are getting the the monthly payments of a, a thousand, two thousand dollars a month or more, are really happy with that income. That's a that's a, a nice little bonus in your mailbox every month. Uh, offshore is not going to do that. Are we going to have trouble with offshore because we don't have payments to the people along the shorelines? Don't you think that they will get um, payments from where the transmission connects in? At least, maybe not property owners individually, but the council should. The right? towns, if they're will, not, yeah. then I would. Yeah, I think so. Suggest they need to re- rethink <laughs> the agreement. Yeah. yeah, and would a lot of the benefits? Uh, is it actually from? It, it, it sounds like the house prices, aren't, property prices, aren't going up so much. Mm. Although I guess that yeah, if you've got selling a farm that has. Few thousand a month income that's going to be worth something to the the sale price. Sure it is. But 
sounds like a lot of the benefit is likely due to the good jobs that came to the the region. Um, so that will still be needed with an offshore wind farm as well. I mean, people aren't they're not hiring dolphins to, to maintain these things or something. They'll still have, you know, people who live, people will still live onshore to, to maintain them, won't they? I, I think that they will. Joel, I mean, you're on the East Coast right now. You're going to see some yeah, of this. Yeah, I'm in Newfoundland. It's windier than, than I'll get out every day here. They should have wind turbines all over this place. Um, but I can say something from the so from a little bit of my past in the oil and gas world, and then also some knowledge from the mid middle part of the United States. So there's there's something that was put into a lot of uh, this is this is oil and gas. Now we can I'm going to take a snapshot of say like the shale boom in North Dakota, <clears throat> when there was a lot of people that got five dollars an acre for their land uh, to for lease rights from oil companies because they knew some stuff was there back in the seventies, eighties, nineties. Shale boom happens in 2005, and now they're getting 10 grand an acre, right? So now you have neighbors that hate each other or that hate the companies that are there because, hey, this guy's got five bucks an acre. I got five bucks an acre. You know, I paid for my kid's Christmas in 1984, but now this guy's got eight million bucks and he's retiring to Florida. This isn't fair, that kind of thing. So that that sparks a lot of some of the not in my backyard, these fights that you have in the in the middle part of the country. So- and wind, the same thing. If you drive through Iowa, it, sometimes you see one farm and you can see it by the roads and where the barns are. Like that's a, a, a agricultural institution of one company or one, you know, farmer. He has a wind farm. The next farmer doesn't. The next farmer doesn't get anything. He just has to look at the wind turbines and that guy's getting a ton. Um, so it does breed a little bit of contempt in those, in those little towns, right? So uh going offshore you're gonna have some people that may have built some houses along the shoreline that are a little bit mad about having to stare at some wind turbines or some not necessarily the winter sometimes it's yes. just the blink, blinking red lights at night like that drive people nuts you know um true but i guess that's just a a snapshot and a little bit of a window of some some thoughts around it well in, in oil and gas and forever when i used to work with people when I, we worked in kansas that we're getting oil rights or get a check in their mailbox every yeah. month for the oil rights to the property that they owned. And that was, that's it's continued on for years. And yeah. some of those sites have been pumping oil for 50, 60 years. That makes complete sense to me. And I wonder if that model is not part of the answer to answer on the offshore question, a little bit of revenue to the local towns and communities, bumping up the schools, bumping up the fire departments, making the roads better as part of the installation that they can see out their back door helps everybody to swallow it. I, I feel like that's where it's going to go. I hope so. Because right now the federal government's making out like bandits, yeah. right? Well, and that's so, so here, <laughs> and the local participants. Here's another there. example for you. In Texas, um, all oil activity is taxed by the local school districts get a lot of money. Right. So there's a there's the school dis, the school districts right. have their own funds, but then there's also a general fund. So you have independent school, independent school, independent school. Once their budgets are full and they reach X percent of surplus, then the rest of that money goes in the general fund. So even if you're in an area in Texas where you don't have oil and gas, you benefit from the Permian Basin in your school system. And that's why they can build hundred yes. million dollar football stadiums for high school kids. <laughs> that's right they're amazing rosemary the football stadiums out in the premium basin are amazing yeah. so yeah it's unreal so it's just a, where where these how the 
contracts are signed and what the states and counties, municipalities do at the time, uh, you know, as well as the federal government uh, for the revenue sharing, um, it's very important. I think some some people could take take uh, a little bit of a look at the state of Alaska and their permanent fund dividend, right? When they found all that oil up there, they established a fund where yes. if you're a resident, you get X amount on your taxes every year, depending on how the fund's doing that year. Um, you know, that money could either be flooded back into the system, like you said, in Allen for infrastructure, or who knows? There's a lot of a uh, lot of capabilities sure. or poss- possibilities. Yeah, I, I do think we're starting to see a lot of resistance along the shorelines on the East Coast, and I think this is one way to sort of answer that question. And it has helped in other places. It seems like a possible answer here. And sort of moving on a little bit to another financially impacted area is the area of research and uh, what the Department of Energy has been working on in the United States for 40 plus years. Uh, There was a report put out last year in 2021 that talks about DOE funded wind energy patents and how many uh, of the DOE funded projects have resulted in a patent from 1976 to 2018. There was 236 patents. So that's a little over 40 years and 236 patents isn't a lot. It's actually represents about less than 1% of the total number, number of wind energy patents filed in that same time period. Where if you look at what the industry has done in that same time period, GE and it's just in wind patents, forget about all the other GE patents and just in wind patents, GE, uh, was awarded t- almost 2,200 patents. Investus was awarded about 1,700. Uh, Siemens also about 1,700. So they, you know, 10 times what the DOE was able to generate in terms of patents. Now the DOE is making an argument that, well, uh, the GE patents are based on our patents, so they're building on the work that we did. That, that, that's that's probably true on some level. But if you think about the amount of money that the DOE has spent is that money being spent in, in areas that is generating new technology, new advancements. It doesn't look like it. And if the recent signing of the Inflation Reduction Act is trying to promote U.S. manufacturing of wind turbines and wind energy and solar, same thing, do we have a, even a framework to create new technology? and new manufacturing techniques in the United States. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. And I, um, I've i been using the, well, DOE stuff, NREL, um, uh, Sandia, if that's how you say it, a lot of yeah. government-funded research um, in wind energy. That was pretty much all that I had when I was doing my PhD research. I, I couldn't... I, I, Attempted to get some, you know, industry collaboration to get some of their real data and was unsuccessful. So I had, it's not real data in the sense that it's not, you know, real wind turbines that have been operating commercially for, for the most part, but there is data <laughs> made by people with real expertise in the, the industry. And, um, you know, you can get a wind turbine design to use as a baseline for your new design, um, or you can get, you know, some good operational um, data or, um, you know, even wind speed data 
They've got a bunch of design tools so that you can, you know, focus on the, you don't need to design from scratch an entire wind turbine blade geometry and structure and, you know, materials um, distribution. You can just focus on the one part that you want to work on. So I definitely have a time on like, well, this is amazing that this is all all provided for free, totally open to anyone in any country. I mean, I was researching in Australia, obviously. Um, so they're doing something very valuable and are they limiting the benefit of that to Americans? I, I didn't see that they were and I was so yeah. pleased <laughs> as an Australian. <laughs> you know, we don't have a lot of wind turbine research here, so um, I would have been we- quite stuck without it. Um, yeah, or I would, have, I would have still done my project, but it would have had minimal relationship to the real world, you know. Um, so yeah, I can see I can see a point. Is that good uh, good use of U.S. taxpayers' dollars to produce all that for the benefit of the world? I mean, certainly, um, I think it's nice. <laughs> I'll thank well, you if for you doing look, it, but I didn't pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you look at some work that the EU has done in recent times, they'll publish the, the the areas of research that they're involved in, and one of them is wind, obviously. And if you try to go find the research, you can't get access to it. Where anything that the U.S. government essentially puts out, you can get your fingers on somehow. You can either get it from a local library or you can get it because it's posted online. It makes it really easy. Uh, and so there's just a huge difference in the way that Europe and other countries deal with creating new technology and the way the United States does it. But you, you kind of get the feeling like, well, these, there's, uh, that the U.S. is funding other countries to develop wind. That's what it feels like. And I think the data somewhat supports that. And I'm not sure that's a, a great concept because we're in, in, in a slightly different world and we haven't really adapted to it. And I'll give you the counterpoint to this. Or eCatapult, which is a UK-funded uh, organization, is working with the University of Plymouth. Oh, okay. You see these or eCatapult uh, press releases on a fairly regular basis. And they have a new uh, offshore development. It's called the Collaborative Offshore Renewable Energy Subsea Systems COSS, COSS, Research Accelerator. So what the ORE Catapult is doing is working with the University of Plymouth, who has all these great labs, offshore uh, tanks, sea tanks, and all the infrastructure to to do testing. ORE Catapult, the university are working together without, without government funding to connect them with industry groups to help fund research that is directly then applicable to the, the, in, the industry. So unlike the United States, it doesn't seem, always isn't a, a company or industry partner there. Uh, it seems like in the GE case, GE, the Department of Energy, GE um, sort of piggybacks and some DOE stuff, and then it gets publicized to the world. The way that the UK is doing is a different model. They're saying, hey, we don't need federal funding or government funding for it so much as we just need to connect the dots here uh, because there's plenty of uh, money being poured into renewables. We just need to help our local economy and businesses grow, and here's how we can do it. We can actually connect them with a bunch of grad students that are really smart and universities that have research facilities and get things done less expensively than we could do it ourselves internally. And doesn't it seem like a, just a totally different model than what the United States has built? In the U.S., you have a bit of both models, right? Because you don't have as you, – so, do. so you have – and of course, there's a difference as well between uh, 
state funded institutions and private institutions. And that's, there's a big, big money change right. there. So you have some of both, but I think the ones that you, you know, that come to the top of your head, uh, a lot of that research is this is, is kind of like this. Like I've seen a lot of programs coming out of like, I, okay, so I spent a lot of time in Houston, Rice, the Rice University, uh, big um, innovation and tech, technological fund there. That's all funded by uh, oil and gas companies and industry. industry. It's 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 right. more like this the ORE catapult right. version here instead of um, relying on government funds. I think that the U.S. has a special case in a lot of the government funded laboratories that we have. Like we talk about Sandia, Los Alamos, NREL. There's a there's a lot of right. those those programs yep. out there. Yes. Um. And and that's all ARPA-E. We just talked yes. about ARPA-E. Um. There's a lot of those those funds out there and. And I think there's a you know there's a danger of if you're working on something that you're trying to keep close to your to your chest that that it gets out when you work with those guys. But I think there's there's a lot of opportunity. Oh yeah, I agree. But who's who are the who are the universities that are working in offshore wind, offshore wind at the moment? None. That I, I, I can't name I, them. I yeah. know the ones that we saw that Rosemary and I saw down in in San Antonio. Yeah. So I can I continuously talk about this as well because of course the company I work for, Wind Power Lab, is a Danish company, and we work with DTU all the time. Right. We work. We work, so there's a lot of industry involvement on that side yes. of the pond. And over here, I know like Georgia Tech has a one of the mechanical engineering labs is doing some stuff with re for uh, repurposing blades, making a circular economy out of blades, which is a great, uh, great idea. Or you know, the industry is tackling it. A uh, great problem to tackle. Um, but that's really the only one I know. There's not a whole lot of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's in it's in that government funded laboratories rather than in the universities. There isn't even a, really a university program that I know of that is a wind energy program in the U.S. at a high level. There, there must be. Yeah. I'm sure that there are, but it isn't like it slips to the tip of your tongue all the time. And I think that there's just so many different models that have been going, have been happening for the last 50-ish years. I'm not sure the U.S. has the best model, and I'm not sure we're looking for the best yeah. model at the moment. And if we're going to be putting $300, $400 billion into something, we ought to be looking to see if we can change the system to be more efficient at it. That's that's what I see. I just don't see the growth that we probably should have in terms of engineering, um, growing engineers, growing technology, becoming that uh, root base of technology growth that we that the United States has been in university systems for all kinds of other things. In in wind and solar, really nothing. And you can actually see it in the patent numbers, the same thing. The patent numbers have dropped off considerably in the United States in wind industry in the last 10 years. It's just fallen off a cliff. Either the, it, Rosemary, I think Rosemary's point is, well, the industry's developed. And I think, well, that, that's probably true, but it really hasn't developed in offshore very much at all. Onshore, I, I agree with you. There's, it, we're just pumping out wind turbines. But offshore, there's so much to know, and we haven't necessarily been proactive. We're going we're gonna to go to DTU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're going to pickpocket them, right? Or we're going to go to RE yeah. Catapult and we're going to pickpocket them because the United States hasn't been proactive in that area. Culture, it just uh, seems like a very you odd can see time. It culturally, though, in the U.S., I mean, as far as um, – so, so take, take a step back and, and, Alan, you and I maybe put our American flag patches in our back pocket for a second. And, and we just talk for a second about we aren't the first people to develop renewable and clean tech. 
You know what I mean? Like, so, so we're a lot of oil and gas, coal, like that's been our thing that, that has driven the American economy for so long, the industrial revolution, all this, you know, pumping out vehicles. We're, you know, the the Ford Model Ts and stuff like that. The the history of innovation in the U S is, is uh, also on the, and the inverse of it, it, it's, it's glutton kind of right. It's certain form. So we're not mm. sitting looking at the sure. clean clean energy space, renewable space, and you can take that and look at like who manufactures uh, solar panels. Where are all the OEMs for wind? No, none of them China. exist here, right? The yeah, China. Well, China, yeah. Right. But I mean, the big the big OEMs for all wind stuff are they exist in Europe, where they thought they thought a little bit before we did about climate change and mm. wanted to do renewable energies and things of that sort. So culturally. Sure. Uh, on the sure. clean energy spectrum of tech, we're just kind of like we're starting to hit our stride, and we're we're you know a lot of innovators and innovation hubs and and money being flown in um, from government, from private industry, from all these different things. Uh, but we're we're that's not what we're first in, I guess, or, or not our focus. No, but I I look at it. Can I use an analogy, Rosemary? Are you going to punish me for using an analogy? Because you should punish me for using an analogy. <laughs> It's that I look at uh, like uh, making uh, uh, silicon chips, right? Uh, that that was really started in the United States for the most part, and then right now there's nobody making those things. And then they had a recent bill in Congress to try to bring that back. So it was sort of nurtured because we have a huge marketplace for it, and we can afford to do it. And then all that industry just poof goes offshore and we think we don't think anything of it i think wind has done that solar has already done that solar's totally done that more than even wind it's ex- exploded offshore and we sit here uh writing software in the united states that's what we make facebook we don't make wind turbines yeah. and th- i think that's where we're going to have trouble uh, and rosemary sees it the opposite way in australia australians are are digging in the ground they're, they're doing the hard stuff right <laughs> we don't do that in the united states so you you, you realize like at what point does the United States figure out, like, we got to build stuff mm-hmm. and we need to focus on building the things and building the industries and are, are we going to do it? And do we have a structure to support it? I don't, I don't know. Could be wrong. We may have a great system. It just doesn't seem like it because when I buy a Siemens Gamesa wind turbine, it ain't coming from the U.S., you know? Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com news. So big news with Dominion Energy down in Virginia. As you, everybody knows, they have a couple of wind turbines. I think there's five or six wind turbines. No, no, there's two wind turbines out in the water off the coast of Virginia. And that, but they're going to be putting a whole bunch more uh, because of D- Dominion Energy's uh, plans to put 2.6 gigawatts, about $10 billion, in 176 wind turbines off the coast of Virginia Beach, a very lovely area. So the, they were granted approval to go do this work, which is one of those major milestones into moving the project forward. Dominion plans to uh, complete construction in 2026. So they, they got a short time frame here. Uh, when they're discussing this with the state and coming up with the final ingredients to a, 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 an agreement, uh, there were they, they described there were several concerns raised throughout the proceeding regarding the affordability of the project and the financial risks to taxpayers or ratepayers. I guess of the same people uh, that that the state of Virginia was concerned that if Dominion Energy's 
project went south, that they had more costs than they expected. They didn't want the ratepayers of Virginia to pay for that. So that's where they got into a sort of a, a <laughs> more uh, longer term talks. So here's what ended up happening. Uh, the state sort of forced on consumer protections. Uh, and it included a requirement that Dominion notify the state within 30 calendar days if it finds that the total project costs are expected to exceed the current estimate. Now that, Joel, does every project not go over budget? And <laughs> offshore in the ocean? I can Come guarantee on, you right? this one's going on. You might as well start filing that paperwork yeah, now. Weather delays, you've got a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> able seamen out there that have never installed a wind turbine. Jones Act people that have never been on a vessel. It's it's gonna. It's not gonna go well. Right. Right. So you know there's gonna be delays, and then it says if or if they have to notify the state if they if the final turbine installation is expected to be delayed beyond February fourth, twenty twenty seven. Now I don't know what's magical about February fourth. That that's Super a Bowl? very odd date, but okay, February fourth, twenty twenty seven. It must Super be Super Bowl, Bowl Sunday. Bowl. <laughs> 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 it's, there's a lot of big screen TVs yeah, you got to power exactly, up for that exactly. big weekend, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that must exactly. be what it is. <laughs> so, Rosemary, it also said that one of the conditions was is that beginning with commercial operations and extending for the life of the project, customers shall be held harmless for any shortfall in energy production below an annual net capacity factor of 42% as measured on a three-year rolling average. Now, that sounds tight to me because I, I looked up the net capacity factors of other wind farms and it's about 40 to 41. So 42 well, offshore. seems- Offshore. Uh, uh, onshore. Okay. Onshore. But this is an offshore wind farm. I, I know that's offshore. Yes, I, I agree mm. with you. But 42% seems like a lot to me. But also with the fact that in the UK, they've been seeing slowing wind speeds and that the, the amount of power produced on the offshore projects has dropped by like 10%, some, something magical like that, a huge amount engineering-wise, 10% is a lot. That that would make this project start creating red flags. Like Dominion's going to start paying for the lack of production. This four, doesn't 42% yeah. seem higher for offshore? Oh, I mean, 42% isn't high for offshore for a new new project. I mean, for it to stack up economically, you need a, a higher capacity factor on offshore right. than the same project um, onshore because the cost of installing an offshore wind farm is way higher than an onshore one. So exactly. the figure doesn't jump out at me. And I know that there's plenty of offshore wind farms that are pushing up past 50% capacity factor expected. I don't know what their expectation is here, but um, it is interesting that if you had three years in a row of low wind speeds, that the company would be liable for that. Um, so, yeah, it, it's interesting. And it's funny, um, it's a topic I've been talking about a little bit recently in social social media comments is I, I'm not sure why capacity factor, people are so obsessed by capacity factor because you can make it whatever you want. So, you know, if I was this company right. and um, the capacity factor just 
had to be met. You put in some small small generators with big long blades and you'll bump up your capacity factor, you know. Um, you'll get less annual energy production um, because of it, but your capacity factor will be good. You can, to a certain extent, choose whatever capacity factor you want. You could get close to 100% if you had a small enough generator. It would just be a stupid project because it wouldn't make much, <laughs> it wouldn't generate much electricity. Well- um, that's what I wanted. So I do that's think what I wanted a, to hear, Rosemary. Yeah, it's that's a weird what, Rosemary, that's what I wanted to hear because I figured you knew what the angles were there. Because yeah. as an industry expert, you've been around it a long time. Is are there ways to get around this that to for to protect Dominion's investment? Are there ways that they can help themselves? Like, would they? Would, would that be something that they do? <laughs> are there yeah, ways to, in, put, to game the system? Put in a. Put in a low wind speed turbine in a high wind speed area and you'll get less energy production, but uh, you'll pay more for the turbines because you've got longer blades. But your generator is going to be, you know, like really cranking out uh, close to close to maximum the whole time. So you'll get a you get a great capacity factor. But I've I've never seen a performance guarantee written in this way. And I'm not an expert, but I did no. work quite a bit with um, performance guarantees when I was working on uh, de-icing um, the you know, blade heating systems. Uh, for LM wind power because that's something that people are pretty pretty concerned about in that area. And it was always a calculation based on actual wind speeds. You know, you were never requiring the OEM to guarantee that the wind would be, you know, a certain that's certain it. level. So, you know, you'd you'd give a power curve and then you'd say, you know, we guarantee uptime of 98% or, or whatever it was. And then you do the calculation for, for what it was. It wouldn't be the capacity factor because it's not just your your uptime and meeting the power curve that you promised. You also need good wind <laughs> to get a good capacity factor yes. or average wind to get the average capacity so, factor. So it's, it's a strange way to ride it. And I would not recommend someone signing something like this unless they had a a huge buffer and um, you know some way to some way to hedge. Well, I was the question. I, I've got the he- I've got the hedge in my in my hand right here. <laughs> but the 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 question I have is Dominion. What is their track record in developing wind onshore offshore? Do they have any? So maybe they maybe they stepped in some mud here that they didn't know they were stepping in because that's one of the articles I read about this. So. I, I came across this one and I called a couple of my friends within the wind or the renewable energy insurance side of things. And specifically uh, two guys that deal in downtime insurance. And when I told them about this contract, they said, thank you so much. Call you back in a bit. Cause they were going right to their teams going call dominion. We want this risk <laughs> because, because the, the, sure. hedge, the hedge is yeah. buy reinsurance on it. If you're dominion, you have to, you have to. So, right. so, right. But it's weather insurance so really, yeah, 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 right? But that's what all insurance it's, and wind it's is. insurance it against uh, persistent low wind speed. So it's, Rosemary, what are the single point failures in an offshore wind system? The ones that can really bite you. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the wind not being there is the one that's front of mind for, for this particular one. And then some sort of, you know, serial design defect that took down a, a fleet yes. rather than just, you know, one turbine. And I guess um, you can also have some, yeah, some offtake problems as, as well. Yeah. Something, something like that. Transformer, substation, go bad. Substation, yeah. get hit by a boat, tip over, hit the water. Boom, you're down for six months. Yeah. It's, it sounds like there's a lot of single point failures in this that is hard to address. And if I was insuring it, I would really want to make sure that I had my bases covered because on onshore, it's not as 
sort of single point failure mode coupled to the way that offshore wind will be. Am I am I missing something mm-hmm. here? Well, they've still got one connection point to the to the grid. You, True, you do see, I mean, there's the been water. examples in, in Australia where, you know, some um, operating um, operating system or there was like a, a safety trip that that tripped um, during an event right. that it should have been able to ride through. It was huge, huge fine and terrible for the industry as a whole because, you know, the whole of renewable energy in Australia got blamed for, you know, this one, this one blackout um, that was, you know, caused by a bunch of other failures. But the wind farm shouldn't have failed. It it should have been able to keep on operating and supplying, but it it tripped because of, uh, you know, some fault condition. So I I think that you do see them from from time to time in in onshore as well. but yeah, the capacity factor guarantee is a weird one because it depends on the weather. We were just in a meeting today with a, a insurance group out of Switzerland talking about natural catastrophe monitoring. So if you go natural catastrophe monitoring, that was the opposite of what we're talking about here for downtime. But their their worry was we have all this risk out there. Were, do the do the models for insurance companies cover this or? Are they out to lunch? Because there's not a good there's no. not a good model there. A, cur- a hurricane comes sweep. There's there's been nothing to insure off the coast of Virginia ever, right? So there's not a model that's built right. in for the ins- insurance industry to say this is every ten you know ten thousand years we have two hurricanes that would wipe out all these that doesn't exist. So there's gonna I foresee uh, at some point in time whenever we get wind offshore in the U.S., whether it's in the Gulf or up the East Coast, there's going to be a hurricane that takes out half of a wind farm. It's going to, I believe it will happen. Uh, yeah, it has with, to happen. It happens in Texas with yeah, tornadoes all the time. In the next 10 time. to 20 years, it's going to happen. So now if you have insurance company that's insuring the, the physical asset and then you have insurance company that's insuring the downtime, who's at fault? I, I would foresee that the name Dominion will be in court cases until this thing is decommissioned. Yeah. It's a shame. It's a shame because I, I think that putting that one provision in is really going to handcuff Dominion, and I'm not sure that's what you want to do. They're, they're trying to protect the ratepayers, and I get it, but I'm not sure that's the right way to go about it. We're going to find out. Maybe it is. Maybe it was great. Maybe it's great for, this, yeah. for the Commonwealth of Virginia. But on Dominion's side, Dominion can walk away from a project. It's one of the things they can do still is walk away, and that would be the worst thing to have, have happen. So. More to come. We just have to keep our keep our eyes on it and, and watch how it develops because it, it there's a there's a lot more to happen in the next couple of years as Dominion makes this project real. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. We'll see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast.